Well, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, I believe I pretty much know everyone here, so I will skip uh, an introduction of myself. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, it is probably because <clears throat> I'm usually running around trying to prevent uh, destruction of church property as I chase my two-year-old around. Uh, so please forgive me if I haven't introduced myself to you. Uh, this morning, uh, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And we'll be looking at verse 19. Now, as you turn there, if you were to ask me right now what I personally believe is the greatest need for the individual Christian, right? If we were discussing the major issues, flaws, weaknesses, needs, and so on in today's Christendom with particular attention to the individual, personal American Christian's experience, if you would, Or even if you were to ask me how we as a church could increase in our effectiveness as a church, as the people of God, as those whom the Lord has placed in the midst of the city of Decula, in our surrounding areas, in our ministry to one another, in our witness, in our workplaces, in our parenting, in our relationships, and so on, I would say that there is one thing that despite all the other things that we could talk about, There's one thing I would say is the greatest and most urgent need that we as a Christian people have today. And that would be a pursuit of personal holiness. Now, this is a very weighty subject, and there's much that we could uh, discuss on the topic. And there are many subsections within that that I could preach on. And so this morning, I want to give particular attention to a subheading within personal holiness. Uh, It is something that the Lord has been continually sanctifying me, uh, has been continually sanctifying me in over the last few years. It is a topic that I have studied, uh, meditated on given much consideration to, and it is a topic that I believe and pray will be very timely, challenging, encouraging, and very practical for you all. And so this morning I want to address the topic of innocence from evil. Innocence from evil. That is, that we as the people of God are called to a pursuit of personal holiness through a pursuit of innocence from evil. So let's begin our exposition now by reading our text. So please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 16, we'll be looking at verse 19, where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient Word which He has spoken to us here through the pen of the Apostle Paul reads, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Let's pray. Father, we 
Thank you this morning for bringing us together or to worship you. Lord, we pray that our worship would be in spirit and in truth or that you would be glorified by it. Or we pray that all of us would be encouraged by all aspects of our worship. Lord, we pray that the preaching of your word would come in power. And Father, I just thank you for this church. Thank you for this pulpit and the truth that is preached from it on a regular basis. Thank you for Deemer. Lord, in his faithfulness. And Father, just pray that you would give me the strength this morning to preach Christ well. So Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the great theologian and post-Nicene church father, St. Augustine of Hippo, in his autobiography, which is considered to be one of the most influential books ever written, titled Confessions in 13 Books, or as we now know it simply as Confessions of St. Augustine, written around the year 400, in book 6 and chapter 8, he recounts the story of how one young man who ended up becoming one of his dearest friends and brother in the faith, Olympias, who was a man of integrity and upstanding moral values, gave up a measure of his innocence from evil as he became addicted to the murderous gladiatorial games in Rome. Augustine tells us that Olympias had formally despised those fights until one day after dinner, he ran into a group of his friends as they were headed to the fights, and they invited Olympias to go with them. Olympias made his stance clear. He wanted nothing to do with it. But his friends, through their words, dragged him along and convinced him to come. However, Olympias was still standing his ground to some degree. He gave in to the pressure of accompanying his friends, but told them that he would keep his eyes closed the entire time. Now, this is what Olympias said as told by Augustine, quote, Though you drag my body to that place and set me down there, you cannot force me to give my mind or lend my eyes to these shows. Thus, I will be absent while present and so overcome both you and them. Augustine continues, when they heard this, they dragged him on in, probably interested to see whether he could do as he said. When they got to the arena and had taken what seats they could get, the whole place became a tumult of inhuman frenzy. But Olympias kept his eyes closed and forbade his mind to roam abroad after such wickedness. Right? So, Olympias makes it to the gladiatorial games, is very aware of the danger to his mind that witnessing these acts could bring about. And so he is resolved to keep his eyes closed. But then Augustine continues to recount what happened 
he says, but Olympias kept his eyes closed and forbade his mind to roam abroad after such wickedness. Would that he had shut his ears also. For when one of the combatants fell in the fight, a mighty cry from the whole audience stirred him so strongly that overcome by, by curiosity and still prepared as he thought to despise the, and, and to rise superior no matter what it was, he opened his eyes and was struck with a deeper wound in his soul than the victim of the battle. Thus he fell more miserably than the one whose fall had raised that mighty clamor which had entered through his ears and unlocked his eyes to make way for the wounding and beating down of his soul. For as soon as he saw the blood, he drank it in with a savage temper, and he did not turn away, but fixed his eyes on the bloody pastime, unwittingly, unwittingly drinking in the madness delighted with a wicked contest, and drunk with bloodlust. He was now no longer the same man who came in, but was one of the mob he came with, a true companion of those who had brought him. Why need I say, say more? He looked, he shouted, he was excited, and he took away with him the madness that would stimulate him to come again, not only with those who first enticed him, but even without them. Indeed, dragging in others as well. Close quote. Olympias' soul was wounded. Innocence diminished. Hatred for violence turned into love of it. He lost a measure of his innocence forever because of that incident. I want to ask you this morning to consider how and to what evils in your lifetime have you, been, have you been dragged into by others or readily and willingly jumped into of your own accord? How has your innocence been diminished? What evil are you currently drinking in the madness of? And perhaps without even realizing it because you're suppressing your own conscience. But as we look at this text this morning, I want to bring these things to your mind and show you from the Word of God that you are called to take a greater stand than Olympias did in order to protect your own heart and mind. For we are called to be innocent from evil. And so I have only one heading this morning. Only one point that our time will allow for, and that is innocence from, from evil. So let us consider our text now, Romans chapter 16. It is the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, and he wrote it to a particular audience, to the Christians in Rome. And he probably wrote this letter around 56 AD during his third missionary journey, and at the time he had not yet been to Rome to meet the, uh, the Roman Christians in person. In fact, we don't know if any apostle had been to Rome yet. Uh, we know that Peter went sometime after Paul, uh, but, but otherwise, the church at Rome is believed to have been founded by the preaching of the gospel through the people who were converted by the preaching at Pentecost. And the Roman Christians were very zealous Christians. 
And they were, from what we can tell, pretty theologically sound. Uh, This letter from Paul isn't written with a sense of a need to correct doctrine, as some of his other letters are. Uh, However, this letter is Paul's theological magnum opus, right? It is the most theologically packed letter in in the New Testament. Uh, so So he does go through a lot of doctrine and application, but his primary purpose in writing, again, is not correction of 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 doctrine so much as it is perhaps correction of personal uh, private practice and proper application of rich theological truths for Christian living. Now notice how he starts out this verse. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Now turn to Romans chapter 1 with me if you would. Romans chapter 1. And notice with me, in verse 5, Paul tells us what one of his purposes as an apostle is. Right? He writes, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Then in verse 8, he says about the Romans, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So their faith and obedience is proclaimed in all the world, right? These are faithful believers who are busy at doing gospel work. Their faith and obedience is proclaimed throughout the whole world. And that is one of the purposes of Paul's apostleship. It seems that they are doing what is his purpose as an apostle to bring about in them. But, right, Paul goes even deeper than that. He goes beyond the external, what is being reported as as their works. Right? He goes beyond that. There is actually something missing. Because in our text in chapter 16, he says, For your obedience is known to all, so so that I rejoice over you, but, but, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So they are obedient. Their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. But, and what I think that that but stems from is a distinction between outward and inward holiness. A distinction between outward and inward holiness. Now, by outward holiness, I mean any good works which are not intentionally done in pursuit of sanctification. All right? And by inward holiness, I mean those works which are intentionally done for the protection and renewal of your mind in pursuit of sanctification. So in other words, the concern here is that these that is that we as Christians are very apt to quickly jump on the bus of busy good works to perhaps show that we are good Christians, uh, perhaps even still from a right heart motivation, right of service to the Lord and His church, but at the same time putting up a sort of front, right, where we worry only about how we look to those around us without worrying about what God really sees in our hearts and thereby, we neglect to protect our minds and hearts from the world, and then perhaps without even realizing it, 
Our hearts are stained more and more with sin, and true spirituality is starved. Communion with God is desensitized, and you are robbed of true joy and happiness. And it seems to me that that is why the Apostle Paul throws that but in there. Your faith is proclaimed in the whole world. Your works are attested to by all, but how is your mind? How is your heart? How is your inward holiness? Now, if you're still in chapter 1 of Romans, let me show you more as to why I believe that this is the picture that Paul is trying to paint. Notice how starting in the very first chapter of this letter, Paul brings into the forefront of his letter the mind, right? The mind. Now, you can see some of those letters are uh, bolded. Uh, It might be kind of hard to see there. But the mind is a very important thing that Paul brings up, right? Uh, And that is because we're made in the image of God. We are rational, cognitive beings, right? Animals are instinctive. We are rational. And and so that is what it means to be partly what it means to be created in the image of God. And Paul, from the get-go starts to speak of the role that the mind plays in spiritual matters. And so listen to what he writes. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? These are words that hint at the importance of the mind uh, in dealing with Christian truths. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, right, ever since the creation of the world. Uh, Verse 21, for although they knew God, uh, they did not honor him or or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, right? So you can see that the mind is a major target of of, of his discourse, But here's the interesting thing as it pertains to our text in chapter 16. And notice how he is speaking in the third person plural when he says things like verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Right? So he is speaking about people in general. And it keeps going through the end of the chapter as he warns about what happens in this progression of sin, right? People don't honor God or give thanks. They become futile in their thinking. Uh, Their foolish hearts are darkened. They fall into the sin of idolatry, so on and so forth. And God gives them over to their passions, a debased mind, so on and so forth. And this, by the way, uh, is a very scary reality. And I would be remiss if I didn't take a second to step to the side and, and, and warn anybody here who has not yet been born again. If you know that you are not a Christian this morning, my friend, you are in danger. And the scary reality is that this passage is true. And there may come a point where if you keep refusing to repent and believe, God may give you over to your own passions. And what's at stake is your soul in hell for eternity. 
But friends, Christ offers you the gift of eternal life. Repent and believe today. Back to Romans. So Paul gives those warnings, speaking in the third person plural. And then, this is what we see. This is where it gets interesting as it pertains to our chapter in 16, chapter 16. All right, he gives those warnings. He's speaking in the third person plural. Right, last sentence of chapter 1, he says, though they knew God, God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Right, again, he's third person plural. They, 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 they. And then look at chapter 2. Right, the very next sentence, going from third person plural, he starts out chapter 2. Notice how quickly his targeted audience changes. It's very unexpected, really. So he goes from the third person plural, they, people in general, to the second person singular. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. Right? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He goes from they, 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 they to you. I wonder how many people were there listening to Paul's letter as it was being read out loud for the first time to the church. And they are hearing the general progression of sin in the plural form. Right? They, 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 they. And then all of a sudden, therefore you have no excuse. Right? How many people stopped and thought, wait, what? Who who are you talking about? How did we just go from them to to me, to us? Do you see that? It's almost like a jab straight through the heart of those Romans who would have been listening and were starting to feel perhaps a guilty conscience because though they are a part of that group whose faith was being proclaimed, right, throughout the whole world, they were at the same time in secret in their minds, in the privacy of their homes or whatever, practicing those same things that they were condemning in public. They were practicing an outward form of holiness while neglecting the most important inward holiness. And so some of them were not being innocent of evil, but but instead were practicing it, giving approval to it, refusing to turn from it. And so he tells them in our text in chapter 16, and you can go ahead and turn back there with me now, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And let me just say this, this is the saying of Paul's, but I want you to be, right? It's not him saying it's probably a good thing that you should probably try to do if you want Uh, That is just me telling you what I would want or wish, but you do as you please. Uh, It's really more akin to a a parent telling their child, I want you to clean your room. Right, so I'll say this, even though our text is not written in the imperative mood, right, it's not directly commanding you shall be innocent from evil. uh, Nevertheless, this is a command to all Christians, right? This is Paul the apostle with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, commanding you to be innocent from, from evil. And even above that, this is this being God's Word, this is God Himself 
commanding you to be innocent from evil through the pen of the Apostle Paul. So let's keep looking at our text. The word innocent here in Romans 16, 19 means not mixed or mingled. And it denotes a sense in which if mixed or mingled, it is destructive in its nature. Otherwise, we could also say pure, unblemished, even ignorant in a sense. And so we are to be unmixed and ignorant from evil to a degree. Now, when I say ignorant, I don't mean in the sense of not knowing that there is evil or knowing what evil is. And so I'm not speaking of a naivete kind of ignorance. In fact, the apostle makes it clear uh, that that is not what he is speaking of. Because uh, look at what he says in the previous two verses about naivete. Uh, Verses 17 and 18. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, uh, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Uh, The naive can be easily deceived by smooth talk and flattery because they are not wise unto what is good, and they are naive in the negative sense of what is evil. So Paul does not in any way condone a a naivete in the negative sense. We should be informed, right? We should know what evil is and have the wisdom to avoid and oppose it, right? Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan will have no advantage over he and other Christians, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so when we are told that we should be innocent unto evil, uh, this means we should be untainted by the personal experience of evil. And that is the ignorance in the positive sense that I would speak of when I say ignorance of evil. We should be ignorant of personal experiences of evil, not the moral recognition of what evil is. And this whole thing is an, is an issue of the heart. As I have already mentioned, that it is an issue of the mind. It is an issue of the heart and mind, and it has been from the very beginning as we see it in the garden. And though we do not have ter- time to turn and look at that text, uh, we see it very clearly in the garden. But, but the mind and heart are synonymously interchangeable throughout Scripture, and the mind and heart is the birthplace of sin. And we need to understand this if we are to properly protect ourselves. Now, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. As I mentioned already, there is a sense in which we ought to be ignorant of evil. Uh, That being in the experience of it. But sometimes even in the knowledge of it. Uh, But I believe there is some truth that applies to the Christian's soul in the saying, ignorance is bliss. If we apply it to this topic of innocence from evil, right? I mean, think about it. Think right now, right? Think back through your lives. How much evil have you seen? Right? How much evil have you been a victim of? Been the perpetrator in? What all has your mind been exposed to now that you are a Christian? 
that you are disgusted by, the memory of it just brings you sadness to your soul. I think about it. If you have children, what is it that you know that you have experienced that you want to keep them away from? Right? Isn't that one of the beautiful things about children? Right? They know right and wrong to a small degree. They know what is evil depending on their age. And yes, they are all sinners like us. But they have a level of innocence from the experience of evil when they are born that it's just a beautiful thing. Right? One of the sweetest moments, uh, pictures in my mind that I have of my son Leo is is of one morning in this very building. Uh, He was just running around the halls as he usually does. I'm sure you see him often just running, 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 running. Right? He's like the Energizer Bunny, just running, 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 running. And one morning I was just following behind him and he's just running down this hall. And he is just laughing with joy. I mean, just, just, just pure joy, just, just laughing. And he, he's paying me no mind. He's paying nobody any mind. He is just running and just pure joy. And I just looked at it and I was just like, this is just beautiful. It's just a beautiful thing to see this joy because it's coming from a level of innocence. And I, I, I love that picture that I have in my mind of him running then. It was such a beautiful moment, but it was also a sad moment because at that same time, I thought to myself, right, that, that he's going to lose some of this innocence because I can't fully protect him from the evils of this world. How much innocence will he lose? What all will, not, will I not be able to protect him from? Right, it brought tears to my eyes. The innocence of a child is something that we as parents treasure. And your innocence, Christian, is something that God, your Father, treasures. Christian, this innocence from evil comes from a pursuit of inward holiness. And believe me when I tell you that inward holiness is to spirituality what oxygen is to the lungs. Right? So how is your spirituality? How is your pursuit of inward holiness, innocence of evil? Right, Christian, what kind of music are you listening to? What kind of movies, shows are you watching? Books are you reading? What are you letting into your mind? Uh, For the most part, I mostly watch kids' movies and cooking or talent shows nowadays. Uh, My conscience will no longer allow me to watch action-packed movies with killing and all sorts of evil. I don't have time to get into all of that in detail, and I will leave that between your conscience and God. But anyways, listen to this. I found this interesting. As I was uh, watching a kids' movie a few months ago, 
you may be familiar with the movie Monsters, Inc., and if you've never seen it, the movie is about these monsters who live in a monster world, and the way they generate power to power their city is by scaring kids in the human world, and Monsters, Inc. is like the Georgia power of the, of the monster world. And so there's this one scene where Sully and Mike, uh, two of the monsters, are in their apartment, and a commercial for Monsters, Inc. comes on their TV, talking about how they power their homes and how they are there for the community, how they carefully match each child to the right monster to get the most energy from the kids' screams to power the city and so on. In this one part of the commercial, uh, they show a human kid sitting at the dinner table eating some cereal, and he is by himself eating cereal by himself in the kitchen, And he's watching TV, a TV that is on the kitchen table right in front of him. And you can't see what he is watching, but you can hear it. Sirens, sirens, a lot of gunshots and screaming. And the monster doing the talking for the commercial says, we know the challenge, the window of innocence is shrinking. Human kids are harder to scare. Friends, Hollywood sees exactly what is going on and what they themselves are causing. And I am a firm believer that Satan and demonic powers are all deeply involved in that world. Hollywood knows the problems they are creating, but they love the the money that it generates for them. But we are the ones who are supporting them. And we give them our money. And I do believe that for us as American Christians, right, just the regular type of people who aren't involved in the criminal world and so aren't exposed to evil firsthand in that sense, I strongly believe that entertainment is the biggest factor in how we stain and mar our minds and become acquainted with evil in perhaps a distant, but still experiential form. Now, I'm not condemning all entertainment, of course, and I am thankful for companies such as Pure Flix. Right, but friends, your mind really is a powerful thing. But it is also a delicate thing. And many of you don't realize how stained and filthy your mind is from everything that you have consumed throughout your life through your eyes. And what I'm worried about is that you believe yourself to be like a submarine. Right, who is able to navigate through murky waters safely, and you think you can watch things you shouldn't be watching, and think things and read things and listen to things you shouldn't be, and what you don't realize is that you may be like a submarine deep down and submerged in all this murkiness, but what you don't realize, friends, is that in reality, you are a submarine not with tightly waterproof, heavy-duty shut doors, but with a screen door. 
And all of that which you are surrounding yourself with is getting in and causing much damage. Along these lines, the late theologian D.O. Moody once said, Christians should live in the world but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they sink. Close quote. Now, I spent a year living on the campus of Truett McConnell uh, back in 2014. It's a Southern Baptist University, if you're not familiar with it. And I became friends with a group of guys, and one night a few of us wanted to watch uh, the movie Batman, one of the new ones with Christian Bale. And one of the guys said he wasn't interested. I said he had never even watched any of the Batmans, ever, of any kind. And I was kind of shocked. Why do you mean you've never watched this great Hollywood film that all of America loves. And I asked him why. And he told me that it was too dark for him. There was too much evil, too much violence. And that was a moment I will never forget. Because it made me realize how comfortable I was with my indulgence of, of, of evil, portrayed even if it's just a movie. There is no doubt in my mind that this plays a big role even in the school shootings that we see in this country. So what should be our standard in in entertainment so we can stay innocent from evil? Well, as corny as it may sound, I really think it would be a good measuring tool for us if as we decide what to watch or what entertainment we allow ourselves to partake in, we ask the question, Would Jesus sit through this with me? Would he be okay with what is going on in my heart as I watch this or read this or do this or whatever it may be? I think we we would all do well to test things in that way. Friends, anything that is evil is sin and anything that is sin is evil. And we as Christians are to stay away from it. Right, recently, the topic became a very heated argument. Can Christians watch Game of Thrones? Answer, absolutely not. I'm sorry if that makes you angry or uncomfortable, but again, your problem is not with me, it's with God and His Word. He hates it, and you should too. It's that simple. But I tell you this as well, friends. I know the struggle. I know the struggle. I know how hard it is to give up some of these things that at first we might not even think it's sin or we might realize the truth that it is, but they still bring us some sort of pleasure. And so we don't even want to think about giving them up. I've been there. It's not easy. At one point, I think I gave up about eight shows that I was religiously following And a lot of them were mid-season. That's hard. My OCD kicked in. All right, I got a a beginning to end. But but I gave them up. I've been there. It's not easy. And again, I'm not just talking about 
TV shows, movies, talking about all sorts of entertainment, things you do outside the house that doesn't involve a screen, sports you watch, anything can become an idol. Now, again, I'm not condemning sport, watching, all that kind of stuff. But I'm specifically talking about anything that portrays forms of evil. So I know the struggle, and perhaps some of you need to go through it too. Now, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and... I was allowed to watch all sorts of rated R movies by the time I was 12 or younger. And I strongly, I strongly believe that that did a lot of damage to my mind. My mother, who is not a Christian, my parents aren't Christians, but my mother texted me a few months ago. She sent me a text message asking me to think about a question that she Uh, was going to ask me and to take my time to answer it with all honesty because somehow it was going to help her. And she asked me, how did I do as your mother? What would you do differently now that you're a parent? Where do you think I failed? If, you know, if she failed. That's a hard question to ask. It's also a hard question to answer. Now, it wasn't hard for me to think of an answer. It's hard to give that answer. In fact, I still haven't given it to her. I immediately thought of the answer, and I've been waiting for her to ask me again, but she hasn't. But I've immediately had the answer because as a Christian parent, I had already thought about these things. And my answer to the question, other than the fact that I was not raised with a Christian worldview, which I can't really expect from non-Christians, my answer to her would be, you did not protect my innocence properly. That's a heartbreaking answer. And one that I dread to have to give and explain because it may crush her to some degree. But more than that, brothers and sisters, I am heartbroken by the offense that I have committed against God, by the things that I've seen and thought of in my life by my lack of remaining innocent from evil. So it certainly wasn't all her fault. But as parents, we have that responsibility as much as it is in our powers. So I ask you again, how is your mind? Now let me give you some quick scriptures to kind of help tie this whole thing together. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Amos 5.14, seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Proverbs 17.20, a man of crooked, of crooked heart does not discover good. In Psalm uh, 119, verse 37, the psalmist cries out, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And in verses 1 through 3, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. Hebrews 5, 14, solid food, food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In Revelation 2, speaking to the church of Thyatira, after rebuking some for tolerating sexual immorality, uh, Jesus says uh, this to, uh, to the ones that had not tolerated evil in verse 24, uh, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 and, uh, through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right, Christian, are you content with the knowledge of evil that you have? With your level of innocence of evil? Would you say your mind is pure, that you are happy with it, and God is pleased? Well, you might be thinking, we are sinners, and none of us have pure minds, so let me rephrase the question. Are you honoring God in the pursuit of your personal holiness? The pursuit of innocence from evil? Are you being obedient in carrying out this command from God? I hope you feel the burden of this topic. And unfortunately, we are out of time. This is easily a multiple-part sermon series on this one text alone, as you can see. And we've looked at really only the negative aspect, right? Our lack of innocence. But let me leave you with a positive, especially for those of you Christians who, who know as you sit here that your mind is polluted. And you at this very moment feel the burden of that pollution and desire to be cleansed. Desire that pollution to give way to clean, fresh air, a purity of mind. Please know and believe and seek after it because I tell you with every fiber of my being that I believe that it is possible to achieve a great level of purity and innocence in this lifetime despite of your past because Christ has died for you, took your sin upon Himself for you, and was raised victorious against death and the power of darkness and has freed you with that power. You have been given the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, to help you grow in godliness.
And the command in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern that which is the will of God, where it's good and acceptable and perfect. This is an attainable reality. Please give much consideration to these things, friends. So how do we renew our minds? How do we grow in personal inward holiness? The short answer, spiritual disciplines. All right, private prayer, meditation, Bible reading, Bible memorization, actively mortifying sin, coming to church, paying attention to the sermons, musical worship, discipleship, all of these things while engaging your mind with the purpose towards sanctification. This is your spiritual worship. You are commanded to pursue these things. And friends, if you are not protecting your minds, you are polluting them. If you're not cleansing, you're corrupting. If you aren't disciplining yourself for godliness, you are derelicting your duty. If you aren't renewing your mind, you are rejecting the will of God for your life. But please, don't just hear that this is a command to keep for the sake of keeping a command. This is good for us as Christians. This is good for our souls. There is so much peace and joy and pleasure and true happiness that comes with this innocence of evil and wisdom and good. It is what your soul needs, friends. 1 Timothy 6.6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. It is possible, Christian. It is possible. I close with this. Matthew Henry, a 1600s Puritan preacher, once said, There is pleasure consistent with innocence. Nay, there is true and transcendent pleasure in innocence. Close quote. Transcendent pleasure in innocence. How is your heart this morning? How is your mind? And what are you going to do about it starting this very moment? My prayer is that we may all resolve ourselves to the pursuit of holiness to take a firmer stand against evil than Olympus did, that we may all grow in true spirituality to such a degree that we cannot but be a bright, shining light in the darkness of the world in which we live. Let's pray.